Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church assembled. We thank you for this opportunity to come and receive directly from your hand the words, the teachings that you have for us from the Bible. God, we do not worship the Bible. We worship you who have revealed himself through these words. We pray that you would make us more like Jesus as we come into contact with this word by the power of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <laughs> we've been in Second Peter 2 for a few weeks here. Um, and today we will, unless I collapse, finish it. Um, you never know, right? Um, so, verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly... They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Of course, this is going to take some context. Um, it's been a booming paragraph um, that finishes with these last five verses today. It has absolutely been... <laughs> I just don't even know how to describe it. Peter has been absolutely lambasting these false teachers who he said would be coming... In the, into the church like false prophets had arisen in the past. And what he's doing here is warning these believers to watch out for these fakers. Now listen, as we go into today and as we've went through the last two weeks, hear me say this. These words are about false teachers who are leading God's people astray. So these sins that we're talking about are not sins of the church. Um... People are reading this saying, man, I, oh, yee, ah, you know, this is describing me. Are you trying to lead a church astray with your teaching? Then yes, this is about you. If you struggle with some of these temptations, this is not about you. Okay, that's important. Your response, what you need to get in mind is, what do I need to look out for in people who teach, who lead, who seem to be wolf, wolfish, wolfish, wolfish. They're like wolves. And, and know the warning signs that Peter's laying out here so that we can respond appropriately and run them out of the sheep pen. Okay, So don't put yourself, if you are a believer, in line with what's being described here about these people. This is not about the church. This is about people who are fakers within the church. So don't confuse their sins with yours. Okay, I think that needs to be said because I think we're reading this going, oh man, this, oh man, I've, I'm like that. This is about, it's not about you if you are in Christ, if you are in church. It is about people who have crept in unnoticed and are purposefully exploiting God's people. Okay, so that, I think that's very important. And I, I don't know that I've been clear about that. So I want to make sure that I was this morning. Um, so again, Peter's warning the believers to watch out for these fakers and he gives a scathing rebuke of who these people are and what they do. He is not talking about saved people. And please keep in mind that this stuff, while it is going on in the church, is not the church. It's people exalting themselves in the midst of the church and leading the sheep of God's flock astray, which makes it that much more important to understand the grievousness of what they're doing. They are wolves who are feeding themselves on those who belong to God. And Peter says they exploit God's people with their words and seek to take advantage of others in any way that they can. 
physically, financially, whatever is expedient and advantageous for their pockets and for their fleshly appetites. And now, after 17 machine gun type verses, Peter finishes with a big boom. For, he says, speaking loud boasts of folly, they, these false teachers, entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So, for refers back to what had just been said previously, obviously. Peter had ended last week's passage. Uh, again, he's writing a letter, so he didn't end a passage. He, we ended in the passage last week with Peter saying that these false teachers were waterless springs and mists driven by a storm, which means they're pointless, they're useless, they're, they're really paradoxes, not being what they appear to be. They're hypocrites and they are villains. And for them, Peter said last week in what we looked at, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, he says today, speaking loud boasts of folly, dot, dot, dot. These false teachers have already been referred to as those who blaspheme angelic beings not knowing what they're talking about. Here, they speak loud boasts of folly. And just look at those three words, loud boasts folly. I think of all that's been said about these people, this probably sums them up most simply and most clearly. They're loud. You're like, well, you're loud, Jason. I am sometimes. It's true. It's not what this is talking about. You get a pretty good feel for these people just from this, right? They're loud. Loud people are of a certain ilk, aren't they? And again, I'm not talking about the volume of their voice. I'm talking about a loud person. It's not a compliment, right? Ever hear somebody called a loud mouth? I just love that old loud mouth. That's not usually how people are saying it. They're like, that guy is a loud mouth which means he talks all the time and you, he butts into conversations, he interjects himself into everything. That's the loud that we're talking about here. Loud. It's an indicator that the loud person is annoying and usually overbearing. They drown out everybody else because they're loud. And that's a pretty good start to help us understand these false teachers. And they speak loud boasts. That word loud boast is actually hyperagkos. And it means overswollen, immoderate, extravagant. They talk loudly and overswollenly, extravagantly about what? Really, the question is who, because they talk about themselves. They are all of that in a bag of chips, they think. And they want you to know that. And so much of what they're saying is try to convince you of that. I, me, well then I told them, well then I came across this special revelation and I really think you should, I, I, me, 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 speaking loud boasts about me. They're really not all that, but they really want you to think that they are. And Peter's third word here is that these loud boasts are of folly. That word means what is devoid of truth and appropriateness. What they're saying about their being cool and all is devoid of truth and it's not appropriate. But that don't bother them 
because they're going to chat you up about their greatness, lying the whole time, telling about their experiences in the past. You know, Paul said he was called up into the third heaven. So was I. I, I was there. I saw Jesus, man. Wow. Wow. They're talking about all that they've done, all, everywhere that they've been. They're talking about their knowledge and they're talking about I, 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 me, me, me. And they're usually not saying anything because it's either not appropriate or it's devoid of truth. And in so doing, Peter says, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Now what's that mean? So they're enticing people literally God's people, and they're doing that how? Now watch this. By sensual passions of the flesh. That's a very emphatic statement. Sensual means unbridled lust. It means excess, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence. That's what sensual means. Passions means craving, desire for what is forbidden, lustful. And flesh means sinful human flesh. And it's these things that these false teachers are using to entice God's people. And they're doing it again in the midst of church life. Now think about that. Baiting, B-A-I-T-I-N-G, baiting, baiting and drawing in followers of Jesus by lustful, sensual temptation. You said, well, that would never work. Well, guess what it does? Well, it wouldn't work on me. Be careful. Be very careful. They're doing this in the midst of God's people and Peter is saying, watch out for this. Baiting and drawing in followers of Jesus by lustful, sensual temptations. And why does that work? Warren Wiersbe says this, First, the teachers are eloquent promoters of their doctrines. They know how to impress people with their vocabulary. Inflated words that say nothing is the literal translation, Wiersbe says. And then he finishes with this, The average person does not know how to listen to and analyze the kind of propaganda that pours out of the mouths and printing presses of these apostates. Many people cannot tell the difference between a religious huckster and a sincere servant of Jesus Christ. End of quote. And again, don't exalt yourself and think it couldn't happen to you. Peter's saying, watch out, it can happen to you. And add to that, Peter says, they're enticing, now watch this, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Now this is a little bit of a tricky phrase to figure out. And the word barely is the key and probably the trickiest word. The Net Bible, which I'll vouch for and tell you I love, New English Translation, translates the Greek word for uh, barely as just instead of barely. That would mean that it recently happened. Those who are just now escaping from those who live in error. That's probably the best way to think about this, okay? That would mean that it recently happened, and so these are recent converts, and that's who these hucksters are preying upon. These sexually enticing false teachers are preying on recent converts, those not established firmly in their faith, so they're enticing those who have just recently escaped from those who live in error. They're baby sheep. 
And these wolves are making hors d'oeuvres out of them. Having just recently escaped from the, firing, from the frying pan of those who live in error, they now are fully enveloped in the fire of lustful enticements from these sensual tempters. And let me tell you what, they know how to pick them out. Because they're watching. Ah, oh, baby sheep. I didn't point anybody directly, by the way. I'm not baby sheep. I don't know. They know how to pick them out. No wonder Peter opened this verse with the word for. Remember, referring back to the fact that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for these people. That makes even more sense now. It's really bad. It's really, really bad. And it goes on from there in verse 19. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And so now we start to peel back some of the layers and see the guts of what's going on in these people's lives. These false teachers promise these new weak converts freedom. Listen to me! Follow me! I'll show you the way to freedom. True freedom. Not freedom like the rest of these people think they have. If you listen to me and follow me, you'll be free like me. And look how free I am. I'm so free, we can have sex. I'm so free, I can just enjoy the things that God's given me to enjoy. I'm not a legalist. We don't want to be Pharisees now, do we? Listen to me, follow me, and you'll be as free as I am. And those who listen to and follow them see and hear them as authorities, as those who have it all figured out, because they look good. And these new believers, this prey that these wolves are bringing in into their own pen, these baby sheep buy into all of the charisma and charm, and they find it appealing based on their physical and emotional longings. But there's a problem. Because these teachers, these free people, are themselves slaves to corruption. These false teachers aren't free at all. They don't have anything figured out. They are slaves of the depravity that defines them. They're slaves bound by something or someone other than themselves and that something is corruption. They're slaves of corruption. The word corruption means the continual impairment and worsening of virtue and moral principles. They're slaves to that. They're sliding down an oil-slicked hill that they can't climb up themselves. And it's getting worse and worse all the time. And remember, these people are promising freedom to other people while they are literally rotting from the inside out. And they are devolving into a black hole of corruption and will continue to do so until either God saves them or they die. Slaves have to be freed or they remain slaves forever. And in their current state, these people are slaves. And Scripture tells us that the lost people are slaves of the devil to do His will. And that's exactly what's going on here with these people. For, Peter says, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 
The point here is that these freedom-promising false teachers are overcome by their corrupt natures, and so they're enslaved to that corruption. Oh, they don't know they're enslaved. They think very highly of themselves. But again, Peter says, they are the slaves of corruption, being overcome by that same corruption, and that's spreading to other people. So no, they cannot promise freedom to anyone, but yet they do. And no, they cannot free themselves, although they think they have. And they lead others into the same corruption that enslaves them. And now watch this in verse 20, which literally just feels like it drops an atomic bomb. Not just on the state of these folks, but their fate as well. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Hmm... That should make us shudder some. So what do we have here? This is one of those verses that can cause some confusion and division in its interpretation. Who and what is this verse about? Before we talk about the what, we have to figure out the who. Who is the they of the four after they have escaped? Is it the false teachers or the new converts that they're preying upon? And it's kind of tough to know for sure. Greek is a very exact language, but this is a little hard to figure out. If you read this verse in context, like the letter that it is, you get this. Watch this, 18 to 20. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if... After they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And if you, anybody read the NASB? I love it, but man, I get lost in the they's and them's. It's like, who's it talking about? And we kind of get that here. And then you have a descriptive sentence... They're saying that if a person is overcome by something, then that equals enslavement. And then the next they is if they are again entangled. So it appears that the flow and the context dictate that this they is the same they that the larger picture is talking about, which is the false teachers. A case could be made for immediate context and the they referring back to the recent converts who are victims of the false teachers. But again, I think if we read this like the letter that it is, the subject of this passage is the false teachers and all that they have done and all that is coming upon them in the future judgment. So just so you know, we're operating from that mindset with the rest of this passage. So the who being the false teachers, what then is going on here? Well, Peter says... If, after they have escaped the defilements of the Word through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, there is a lot to look at there. So to sketch it out, Peter says that at one point they, these false teachers, escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of Jesus. And then later, they are entangled in them and overcome. And then he says that this last state of being overcome again is worse than the first state, which would refer to their state before they possessed that knowledge of Jesus. 
They don't know Jesus. They get to know Jesus. Now be careful, we'll come back to that. They come out of the defilements of the world, but then they're overcome by the world and its trappings again later, and now they're in worse shape than they were before knowing. So the question is this, did these people, these false teachers, get saved and then backslide? Losing their salvation? If you just read this verse, you could come to that conclusion. But there's a whole rest of the book, a second Peter, there's two letters that Peter wrote, and there's 64 other books in the Bible that teach something different than that. Right? The Bible does not teach that we can lose our salvation. If we attained it ourselves, we could lose it ourselves. But if He picked us up, up by our head out of the world and said, you're mine now, and put us in His hand, Jesus said, none that the Father have in His hand are going to be lost. Perseverance of the saints is a main tenet of what we believe. And why do we persevere? Because of the ongoing effects of the gospel in our lives. These people didn't get saved and then said, uh, you know what, I think I like this sensual stuff better, but I'll stay right here and, and talk about this stuff that I know. That's not what happened. They weren't saved. I know I say it all the time, but I will continue for all time to say it. Context rules in biblical interpretation, really all interpretation. Peter's talking about false teachers and the havoc they wreak on believers. These people are not saved. They are wolves. They aren't wolves who became sheep and then turned back into wolves through some undoing of God's work of regeneration. God does not renew a man, then change his mind. God does not renew a man or allow that, then allow that man to undo the work that God has done. Rest in that, saints. These teachers have come into knowledge about Jesus. But there's more than one kind of knowledge of Jesus. And this one that they have is not a saving knowledge. They know about Jesus. They're familiar with His ways. They've read the Bible and they've twisted it to mean what they want it to mean for their advantage. But they do not know Jesus in a saving sense. They don't know the most important thing. They know about some things and some good things and they're going to twist that to their own purposes. They are wolves. But there's more than one kind of knowledge of Jesus and this is not the one that saves them. That knowledge that they got helped them to turn over a new leaf. Take a new direction for a while. But what they got a hold of wasn't the real deal that would help them break free from the world's gravity. They may get into the upper atmosphere, so to speak, but they can't go any further. So after a while, they run out of fuel and they crash and burn in their spiritual endeavors. Dramatic effect. You've got to love that. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. They maintain an appearance of spirituality, but it's just a facade. And underneath that facade is rot and decay, having been overcome again and freshly entangled in the same sin and corruption that they were entangled in before they came to any knowledge about Jesus. And this second state, this mask-wearing state, this hypocrisy is worse than when they didn't know anything about Jesus and they were just plain old unsaved folk. Now they're religious. 
at least in outward appearances, and they're taking advantage of true followers of Jesus. They're hypocritical, ravening wolves in the role of leadership in the midst of the sheep of God's pasture. And to be a wolf in the master's pen is not a good place to be at all. This second state is worse than when they were outside just trying to find something to eat on their own. Yeah, you'll pick off some sheep. You might get fat on the hapless victims you consume, but the shepherd is watching. And the shepherd is coming for you. You can be sure. So worse indeed is this second state. Peter continues this thought and expands on it in verse 21. Hooey! For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Hooey! It's that bad. So the last state has become worse than the first state. Four. Because this new state is worse because it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the commandment delivered to them. Now don't miss this. There is a lot explicitly and implicitly suggested in this verse. Why would Peter say it was better for these people to have never known the way of righteousness? I mean, that's a bad place to be, right? We, we speak so often of the terrible state of those who've never heard the gospel. That's a terrible spot to be in. And so many of us grew up hearing over and over the plight of those in the 1040 window, that section of the world that had the least evangelized population in the world. And certainly, we want to be about the business of proclaiming the gospel to those who haven't heard it. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But it turns out there's a worse state than not knowing or never hearing the gospel. It's after hearing it and knowing it and then to turn back from the holy offer, the holy suggestion. No, no. Let's take this at face value, which we should. And then it's plain to see that there's a worse condemnation for people who know the truth, who know what the commandment of God is, and then they turn away from it. These are people whose religion was a phase of their life or a stage they went through, and then they decided that they didn't want to do that anymore. And that's a terrible place to be. Terrible. Why? We hear so much and have spoken about it here so often. Those who've left the faith, having deconstructed, as the modern term says. They've deconstructed their faith. It's prevalent in Christendom today, or so-called Christendom. I used to believe, but I don't anymore. I have passed judgment on the truth, and I have found it to be not truth. Pooey. They found flaws or holes in their understanding of Christianity and it's just not for them anymore. They've grown up. They've gotten smarter. They think. They think. And let me tell you, beloved, this is a perilous place to be. For, Peter says, it would have been better that they had never taken their spiritual detour than to have taken it and then decided, no, I'm going to take a different path. Now, why would Peter say that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? 
I think the key thought here is found near the end of the verse. And the phrase is, the holy commandment. You see, God's not a fancy that you feel when it's convenient for you. Christianity is not a religion you pick out of many others in order to scratch your itching conscience. God, the sovereign creator and ruler of His universe, commands people to forsake their sins and live obediently to Him. That's the holy commandment. And who does it apply to? All of His creation. And for human beings, that means every single human being that came since Adam and Eve have a responsibility to keep the holy commandment. And all who do not obey that holy commandment will suffer the just condemnation that comes from their disobedience. And these false teachers who've seen and known the commandment and then just decided they didn't want to comply, they didn't want to obey, now are in a horrific state of willful disobedience telling God, I know better than you. Much worse state. Commentator Clive Anderson puts it this way. Peter's describing the difference between intentional and unintentional sins. Those who deliberately sin against God express open rebellion and will be called to account. No amount of self-pity can prevent that happening. The early designation for Christianity was the way. The same word is used by Peter in the phrase the way of righteousness. The false teachers had turned away from this way and in so doing they had turned their backs on Jesus who is the only way to God the Father. And then he finishes with this. These men knew what was right and what was wrong but they deliberately chose the way of defilement. So Peter warns his readers to beware any deliberate twisting and distorting of the Word of God." End of quote. Not only have these people dismissed their responsibility to obey the Word of God, they have, as Anderson said, twisted the very Word of God and are teaching others, including some true believers, to pursue their natural passions instead of holiness and righteousness in line with God's commandments. And oh, woe is them. Woe are them. Woe, you know what I mean. Listen, now here's something that's implicit here, maybe not explicitly said. There will be a worse condemnation for some people than other people at the final judgment. All sin is sin. That's true. But he's saying here there's a worse condemnation. Think about that for a second. It would have been better in the judgment if these people had never known the true commandment. It would have gone better for them if they had not known there was a commandment to holiness to adhere to. And now, since they did know and chose to disobey and they are also teaching others to disobey, it will be worse for them. I don't know if that means hell will be hotter. I don't know what that means. I just know it's going to be worse. Now don't miss that. It will be worse for them when all is said and done. It may not look like it to the eye gate. They may look like they're flourishing. But they're storing up wrath for themselves, we saw earlier. Now let me be clear. 
while it will be worse from them for them in eternity future that doesn't mean that things will be worse for them here the hardening that's happening to them is happening internally and let me be clear about this too God can save whomever he wants to save at any time along the course of their lives look at the Apostle Paul dude was killing Christians but listen there is a hardening effect of biblical truth that makes it worse to know if you don't believe I don't remember who said it or where I saw it I've seen it a few times but the same Sun that melts the wax hardens the clay if there is a move toward the truth that is followed shortly or farther up the road with a refusal to obey that truth it's like some kind of door slam shut that probably will never open again you say that's pretty strong message let me tell you what Hebrews says Hebrews 6 4 to 8 for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burnt. Now, we don't have time to expand on that. We'll get that when we're going through Hebrews, which is our next book. And then follow that with Hebrews 10, 26-28. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Again, there's that knowledge of the truth that's not saving knowledge. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now listen, that is startling. It's startling about what awaits these false teachers and hopefully a warning to all of us to look and go, I'm watching out for that because their end is destruction. And I don't want to be around that destruction. And then we finish today with a couple of illustrative proverbs that help give clear word pictures of what all this is like. Verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's pretty picturesque, isn't it? <laughs> Peter says that what will happen with these false teachers has been said before and can be repeated on a consistent basis. He says to look at the true proverb if we want to know what has happened to these false teachers. And note that verb tense. It has, it's as if it has already happened. And he actually quotes two proverbs. The first one is Proverbs 26.11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I won't get too graphic, but if you have or ever have had a dog, you get this for sure, right? I used to get freaked out when our dog threw up, but now I'm like, he'll clean it up. <laughs> and he will, right? You can't keep him from it. You have to restrain him because it's like a magnet. He's going back to get that. 
again. I'll stop. I said I wasn't going to get graphic. but The writer of Proverbs says that fools are like that. They just keep coming back to the mess that they made. Over and over and over. They regurgitate things. Probably that they've heard somewhere else and they just keep coming back to it. But it's not the Bible. It's not the Scripture. It's vomit. And it's like a magnet that draws them a tractor beam that they're stuck in. They can't and they won't change. They just keep coming back. Peter says that's what these false teachers are like. They might show signs of change or repentance, but then they throw up all over themselves. And it always leads them back to repeating and amplifying their errors. Peter also quotes a non-biblical proverb when he says, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Yeah, go ahead and give that sow a buttermilk bath. Make that pig radiant. We talked about that last week, right? What's she going to do? She will not pass go. She will not collect her $200, but rather she will find the nearest mud hole and roll like there's no tomorrow, no matter how clean you got her. Now why? It's just what they do. It's in the programming. It's in their DNA. It's in the very core of what they are. And Peter says that's true about these false teachers as well. Go ahead, clean yourself up a bit. Make things look better. You're going to seduce and exploit who you can, when you can, every opportunity that you get. You're going to reject biblical commands and tell us how you deserve to imbibe in all of this debauchery because God doesn't mind if we have a little fun. Roll on, mud puppy. Roll on. That's how these false teachers are wired. And even more so after they gravitate to and then away from biblical truth. One more note before we finish this verse. What are the two animals that Peter uses? Dogs and sows. Now look at Matthew 7, 6, which was Peter's rabbi's Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Hmm. Dogs and pigs. <laughs> it's almost like Peter had listened and paid attention to Jesus and became like him in his doctrine and his conduct, right? It's almost like Peter was paying attention and wanted to share the commandments and the teachings of his rabbi to the people who are under his care. Which is a good example for us, by the way. Just say what Jesus said. Just say what the book says. Use the same illustrations. It's fine. It works. He's a better communicator than you are. I promise. And me too. I'm not a better communicator. That's not what I mean. Jesus is a better communicator than me. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Dogs and pigs. That's quite a way to finish this portrait of these false teachers, right? Well, let's see what we can apply out of this scathing passage. Again, that's not about you if you are a f true believer in Jesus Christ, if you have seen the need for forgiveness of your sins and seen the sufficiency of the work of Christ to forgive you and to adopt you into the family of God. 
As long as you're not here to manipulate and exploit these people and you believe in Jesus, this passage is not about you. He's telling you what to look out for. But we still have to apply it, right? Three H's. Harsh, halt, and holy. Harsh, halt, and holy. Triple H. Wrestling fans are like, yes. Or, I hate that guy. Harsh. Here's my question. Why in the world is Peter being so mean? We kind of mentioned this last week, right? But doggone it. This is not nice. This doesn't seem Christian-like. Right? Calling people dogs and pigs and talking about their sorry state and talking about how rotten they are to the core and they got no hope and their condemnation is going to be worse than it was before they knew anything? Why is he being so mean? And then the second question is, should we be mean? <laughs> Some of you are like, yes, yes we should. Tell me why we should. <laughs> well, I'm going to answer that question with a yes and a no. Jude. Verses 3 and 4, again, we talked about this last week. Jude says to his readers, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, yea, us, we're saved, look what Jesus has done, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now we talked last week about the similarities between Second Peter and Jude. And this is very much like what Peter's saying. And what I want to note there is that word contend for. It's one Greek word. He wants to write talking about how great it is to be forgiven, about how we're saved, and heaven's going to be wonderful. But he says something has happened. And some shysty people have crept into the congregation unnoticed. And what these people are doing is they're leading the people of God astray. They're wolves in the midst of the sheep pen. And what I want you to do is to contend earnestly for the faith. Now that word contend for is epagonizomai. You're welcome. I should have put that up there because in that word there is part of it that is A-G-O-N-I. I. Agony. To agonize about something. The word literally means to make strenuous or labored effort in someone or something's behalf. How much are you laboring in your life for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? How much are you standing up against false teaching and saying that is false, this is the truth? Are you agonizing over it? Because this is exactly what Jude is calling us to do. And you know what? Sometimes when you're agonizing over something, you might get a little harsh. If I'm a shepherd, I'm going to get a little harsh with the wolf. Why? Because he's an enemy. And he's seeking to consume the sheep. And that's not alright. 
Now, I tried to cut this back and I couldn't. This is a quote from a guy named Jerome, N-E-Y-R-Y, Neary. Now listen to this, because I find this very interesting. And let me say this, the word polemic, P-O-L-E-M-I-C, some of y'all might not know what that means. It means warlike. Okay? There's irenic, which is peaceful, and there's polemic. There's ways to approach debates, irenically, peacefully, or polemically, which is warlike. Okay, watch this. And stay with me. This is a couple of paragraphs. They tell us not to do that when we're speaking to people, but I think y'all can handle it, right? I'm reading the rest of it anyway, so what if I'm reading this? Here's a long quote, and I'll tell you when it's over. Peter's continuing polemic against his opponents, while perhaps tiresome to modern readers, was both expected and appreciated by readers in a world where honor challenges abounded. Every challenge must be answered with a riposte, R-I-P-O-S-T-E, riposte. Every challenge must be answered with a riposte, which just means like a, another, so you want to jab my way, I'm going to jab your way. That's what a riposte is. It is hardly accidental then, Nehri says, that the author mocks the empathy promises of his opponents. They're scoffing at both the traditional promises, which we'll see in chapter 3, and the prophecies, which we saw in chapter 1, of the group is a serious honor challenge both to the author, who vouches for them, and to God, their original author. He responds to this challenge with a fitting riposte, namely the mocking of their promises. Their words are vain and empty. They lie when they announce freedom from anxiety and judgment or freedom from boasts or freedom from, sorry, freedom from law. I skipped a line there. Just as they were likened to waterless springs and accused of mouthing empty boasts, so their promises are empty, vain, and shameful. He goes on to say, the honor of Jesus is challenged and must be defended. Now, Jesus doesn't need defended, but we should be defenders of His honor. He goes on to say, New members of the group once acknowledged the Lord. That is, they pledged loyalty to Him, acclaimed His sovereignty as Lord and Judge, and swore to follow His capital W way. The honor of Jesus increased as He was thus publicly acclaimed, but now that honor is challenged and denied, for these same disciples no longer follow His way, no longer fear His judgment, and no longer expect His triumphal arrival. The teachers of these folk have themselves denied the Master, which we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, thus shaming the Master. And now recent disciples follow their shameful example. Part of the riposte to this honor challenge is the present public shaming of them. The Lord will deliver the final riposte Himself. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. Here, He finishes saying, the emphasis is on the shame that these folk have brought upon the Lord, a public reproach of serious import. End of quote. Do you care about the honor of Jesus? Sometimes. If I care about the honor of Jesus, I'm going to speak up when He's dishonored. And it may sound mean sometimes. I will not allow you to blaspheme my Lord that way. What you're saying is false. What you're saying is blasphemous. And the Word says this... And I'm not going to allow that to go unchallenged. We're so afraid of upsetting people. 
We're so afraid of coming off as mean that we don't defend the honor of the one who died for us. Now let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying go and pick fights on Facebook or anywhere else for that matter. What I am saying is that we need to make sure that we are not accommodating foolish, false doctrine, but should rather, when confronted with that foolish, false doctrine, with a riposte, we should reply with solid biblical truth, therefore refuting what is wrong with what is being said. If someone says it's not sin to blank, and blank is called sin in the Bible, we say no, it is sin to blank. We don't cover our mouths and say, well, I don't want to upset anybody. No, you're wrong. The Scripture's clear that that is sin and you better flee from the wrath to come because God's judgment is going to come upon all those who blank. And I don't want to just pick one today. We don't have time to go into all of it. I'm not trying to avoid the subjects, but there's too many. And our culture has lost its ever-loving mind. And how dare us sit quietly in our humble abode and not say anything. The honor of your Lord is at stake. Be a little harsh sometimes. Speak the truth in love. But don't look at the wolf and pet it saying, Good wolfie. It's not alright. Harsh. Now, halt. This is very similar to something we talked about last week, which not all of y'all were here last week, so this will be fresh for some of y'all. Don't be quick to follow any one teacher or any group of teachers or any group for that matter. You have to wait and see what their long arc pattern is. And what I would say differently this week than I said last week is this. These false teachers can't help but relapse into their sensual, greedy ways. Wait and see if they return to their vomit. Wait and see if they go wallow in the mud again. Now I'm not saying as soon as somebody sins, say, see, see, see. But watch the long arc. It's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. I was talking to somebody the other day, they said, I'm just going to start reading dead guys because I know how their life went. Probably some wisdom in that. There's many books I've had to take off my shelf because the people that wrote them went and rolled in the mud again and I don't want their muddy stuff on my shelf. As solid as it may have seemed at the time. Don't play with it, y'all. And don't just say, best-selling book must be good. Guy must be a good writer. She must be a good teacher. Don't do that. I'm not saying don't read it. But don't be surprised if they roll back in the mud again. Don't let your faith be shaken. I thought, man, that, I love their teaching. They seem so genuine. They seem so real. Don't jump on somebody's bandwagon after a best-selling book or an engaging podcast that tickled your fancy. These false teachers give a good appearance of godliness or biblical insight, but again, their lives tell the true story. John MacArthur gives some good indicators to look for in leaders 
to be hesitant about. I won't quote them all. He had a long list. But I'll name a few that he said. This is things to watch out for. A leader with a lack of deep seriousness about sin. A leader with a lack of restraint from immoral media. Someone with a preoccupation with physical appearance. I'm safe there. <laughs> a leader with a preoccupation with current trends and styles. Safe again. Someone with a lack of personal accountability. A preacher who fails to preach holiness and repentance. Better halt. You better throw up at least the yield sign, if not the stop sign. If you see, and there's again, there's many others. But that's a good indicator of, hey, wait a second. This guy never talks about sin. That's a problem. This guy never calls us to repent. That's a problem. This guy, he's just head and shoulders above everybody else. He's not accountable to anybody. That's actually a glaring red sign, I would say. And a failure to preach holiness and repentance, yeah. Leave that alone. That's dog sow stuff there. And again, there's many more, but this is a good start to show when to halt, when to really question and go, wait a second, I don't know if this guy's the real deal. And don't be shocked when, they, when that self-destruct button is pushed and you see their true colors. Don't be shocked. Oh, I can't believe that happened to them. It can happen to anybody. Quick note here too. This passage is talking about false teachers and their ultimate demise. Someone asked me last week what we should do if we see in ourselves the sins and tendencies that these false teachers demonstrate. And my answer was repent. Because we can as God's people. And we should as God's people. Listen, what Peter said today is these false teachers won't repent and they can't repent. But we as followers of Jesus can Harsh halt and finally, holy. The clear teaching of all 66 books of the Bible is that the command of God, the command of God is for His people and literally all people to be holy as He is holy. That's the commandment. It's not a suggestion. It's not up for debate or preferences. That's the command. And this, this commandment to be holy as He is holy is the message that should be central in all teaching and preaching. It's almost like what Silas said this morning. It's almost like the main thing is the gospel, right? Because I promise you, you can't be holy in and of yourself. It is impossible. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Thanks for stealing my sermon, Silas. That's, I appreciate that. I'm just kidding. I'm glad. It, it tickles me to death to have that repetitive nature. The main thing is the main thing. And the main thing is the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So if you don't flee to the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and you aren't given the very righteousness of Christ as a free gift of His grace because of the great love with which He has loved us, if you don't repent, you will spend eternity in hell. And that's going to be worse for some people than others. Hell has fallen out of vogue though. 
That's why people deconstruct. I just couldn't justify hell. You don't have to. You're not God. Hell is a hard doctrine. And it's a biblical doctrine. And if you don't flee from the wrath to come and find safety in the strong name of Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, you will see hell and you will spend eternity there. Oh, but thank God. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, listen, lose all their guilty stains. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's the gospel. And that gospel love moves us to obedience, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Fleshly effort will never do it. You cannot be holy yourself, but in and through and by the grace of God, you can be holy as He is holy. And listen to me. Any teacher or preacher or leader or writer or blogger or vlogger or whatever they may call themselves, that doesn't call people to see and know their sinfulness and run to the cross of Christ for the gift of His holiness is not being faithful to the command of God. False, feel-good exploiters are not going to preach this message consistently, if at all. But teachers in the church are to both model and proclaim this truth imperfectly, but consistently. Peter understood this. Again, it's like he heard Jesus say something. 1 Peter 1, 14-15, we'll finish with this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Thus saith the Lord. And anybody that's not preaching that, run from them. Because the destruction that's coming upon them is worse than the destruction of your everyday run-of-the-mill unbeliever. Let's pray. Father, You do not call us to a lazy faith. You call us to contend earnestly for the faith that has once for all been delivered unto the saints. May we be those who are faithful to put on the armor to fight the good fight, to stand the ground that Jesus has already won, and to fight from victory for the truth of the doctrine that has saved our souls. And God, if there be wolves in our midst, help us to run them out. And I mean run them out. Not toy with them, not have sympathy for them. Run them out. It's way too late in the game for half measures, Lord. May we be those who are serious to contend earnestly for the faith and may we have no mercy on the wolves because God, You're not going to. Help us to know how to conduct ourselves, God, in light of these things and may You be glorified as a result. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said...
Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us if you can.